This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. Welcome to Headscarves and Good Yarns with me, Amal Abdullahi. The show is all about talking about race, diversity, and everything in between, all in the hopes of empowering a more empathetic Aotearoa. We talk about all these huge life things through the lens of people's lives and stories. I hope every yarn you take a wee gem from it and expands your heart and mind just a wee bit more. Kia ora, alaikum. Welcome to another episode of Headscarves and Good Yarns. I, as I'm recording this, I'm just realizing that this will be the last um, episode that I'm recording for the year. I'm not too sure when you'll actually hear this, though. I feel like it will be in between Christmas and and New Year's. Um, but this is so strange. This is going to be the last recording for um, this year. Um, I feel like this year's gone by so quickly Um and to be perfectly honest with you, um, I haven't been able to do as much as I wanted um, with the show, but I just wanted to give a huge shout out to everyone who still tunes in and for everyone who messages um, or emails or pulls me aside in the street and say something um that's really really awesome and it's so like cool to know that there's people out there who are still listening and um lol I'm getting flashbacks to when I probably said something similar to this at the end of last year but um I I want to put more time into this mahi um, and so I'm hoping that this time next year I'll be able to look back and, and be super, super proud of what I've done. But even though I haven't been able to accomplish everything um, this year, I'm still super, super proud of the conversations and, and the topics that I've brought up in the show. And to all the awesome people that I've interviewed this year as well, I just think it's amazing that um, – people come on here and they share their authentic selves on the show which is honestly it's a beautiful thing and um I kind of want to pick up where I left off the last episode where I was just kind of unpacking or briefly unpacking the history of whiteness and you know why it's important that we we do that and why it's important to kind of unpack this history um because you know, when we're talking about whiteness, you know, fr- fragility and, and guilt and shame come up, um, which are very, like, normal human emotions and reactions. Um, but I think we need to kind of move past that to get through the conversation that's waiting on the other side. And I think when we think about the state of racism now, we need to not just be talking um, about how to be anti-racist we also need to be talking about well what is it what is that ideology what is that structure that upholds this racism to begin with Um, and that is whiteness right it's this whiteness which holds this power and privilege with sets up this power dynamic where people of color and indigenous people um, are at the bottom and um, you know I think it's very important that we are actively anti-racist but to truly bridge the gap I think we we need to unpack and dismantle this um, whiteness that is um, present 
as well. And um, and I think not only does this whiteness pertain to the conversation when it comes to culture and race, but I also think it's very relevant to all marginalized people. I mean, um, there's so many, like, our identities are intersecting with so many other things, right? So it's not really just race that we're talking about here. We're talking about so many other things, um, you know, and even within this whiteness, there are, are layers of of privilege, like class, for example, to be um, even with in the system where white people hold the most privilege, there are layers and there is a hierarchy. Um, white people who come from a very wealthy background hold different privileges to white people who come from um, poor backgrounds and it just kind of reminds me of the corridor that I was having a couple of um, episodes ago about um, To Kill a Mockingbird, right? How there was this um, woman, I honestly forgot her name. Um, she accused um, one of the other characters in the book who um, was a black man of a certain crime. And... Um, you could see how she was in a spot of being advantaged but disadvantaged, right? Disadvantaged because she was a woman, but disadvantaged not only because she was a woman, but she was a poor woman, um, came from a very poor family, um, you know, literally living on the outskirts of that particular society. Um, but, you know, she was white and she had that privilege so I think we're not just this is not just talking about um race and culture this is is more than that right um but just for ease um and for clarification moving forward for the rest of this episode when I'm talking about whiteness it will be in specific reference to um race and culture um and so the last episode, we kind of finished the episode talking about how, um, just a quick recap, that, you know, this whiteness was really solidified um, or justified with slavery. You know, um, when slaves had that Christian label um, because, you know, they weren't prisoners of war or they weren't criminals, they had um, protection. And so to make that distinction um this um whiteness came through as another way to separate um slave masters from slaves and um and there was legislation kind of drafted around that as well so that offered very little protection um for slaves and and slaves were um open to horrible horrible abuses of power and just um violent treatment as well and so I suppose that's where the seed was planted and this whiteness kind of trickled through and then I kind of wrapped up the episode talking about how um 
you know, the World War happened and after the Nazi regime, um, the world was kind of really reeling from, you know, the actions and the horrible crimes of what it's like when um, a certain group of people in society are put under a particular um, bracket and then are treated a certain way because, you know, what happened under Hitler's rule was... Uh, genocide it was horrifying and shocking for the world um, and that level of violence was abhorrent um, and so you know after the the Nazi regime there definitely was this public dint- distancing of of whiteness um, you know that was so obvious and apparent before and I think I missed um I missed a key point before. So before um before um the Nazi regime, this definition of whiteness which was planted by um plantation owners and it trickled down and as it was trickling down, the definition of like who was and wasn't white, um, I think a really interesting um conversation um very interesting conversation um you know people who at the beginning it was the definition of white was very very narrow um you know you had people who who were of um black heritage um were seen as were seen to be in direct opposition of whiteness and it was kind of these two two extremes that um America was living in and I think by extension the rest of the world right at this point um and yeah it was really really interesting um who would be considered white um on the back of the on the back of that extreme um you know ralph waldo emerson um insisted that irish like the chinese and the native american were not caucasian and like to me i look i look at that and i think that's really interesting because like if we're really thinking about it from a biological point of view like Irish people American like both white that's white to me but this like uh definition of whiteness was really really narrow um the Irish were in the same boat as Chinese and Native American and um were not considered white um but then the definition of who counted as a culturally white person did expand um and expanded to catholics from southern europe the irish and even um jewish people who you know were always kind of initially considered as outsiders and so it kind of became this weird unspoken of but most definitely their religion of this whiteness right and um people were really really obvious about it and then the world war happened um and people want yeah the society kind of distanced itself from like a publicly endorsing this whiteness um you know winston churchill back in the day had a um 
general, I had an election winning um, theme campaign around keeping England white, um, which after the World War, it was a weird time. Like people, you know, definitely still believed or subscribed to that ideology, but the public endorsement of it was definitely declining. And then we kind of, after World War, uh, after the World War, um, people were kind of publicly moving away from this um, public proclamation of whiteness. And then we have the civil rights movement really heat up in the 60s. And um, that was also a very interesting time for whiteness because because the um, civil rights movement was kind of seen as all the work that ever needed to be done ever um, to combat racism. But racism was still very much alive. But because of this public separation and also because of the very public civil rights movement, um, you know, it kind of took other forms. Um at the time, a poll found that 74% of um, Britain thought that brown-skinned immigrants ought to be um, taken back home. And, you know, when people have that kind of attitude, you can see how it comes from this whiteness. Even if you think back to its um, original roots with um, the slave trade um, you can see how it's kind of trickled down and people have it's kind of become so absorbed into people's um, thinking the way that our society is structured but because it's not so publicly forthcoming um, you know people thought right on the coats of the civil rights movement that's all the work that ever ever needs to be done um, which is honestly so strange and so because the whiteness was kind of publicly retreating what kind of took space or took that volume um, in the public sphere was this um, color blindness rhetoric um, but I think the color blindness conversation was a distraction because this whiteness, this power that this um, whiteness gave was used and exercised in a different way. It was now exercised in an institutional and structural way. And it was, you know, this was able to happen because this was on the back of the previous centuries of this, power gap that was set um all these centuries ago and so it was because it was built up for such a long time it was very easy just to kind of slip away into the darkness um and kind of insidiously um come about in an institutional and structural way and so and then you kind of see kind of happening at the same time these very blatant and obvious assertions of white power because you know at the time KKK um, was 
was happening um but because of the kkk and other you know the civil rights movement and this um moving away from being so public and obvious about it racism was kind of reduced to just being um a a mere hatred for another race and so now you have this dynamic happening among liberals and conservatives you know white liberal liberals and conservatives who thought that if you just could look in your heart and there was no room for hatred for black people and you saw black people as um not second class citizens and as people um worthy of love and being treated equally right then you can never ever be racist but that it it can't be reduced to that simple problem anymore it's um kind of infested itself into its into our legislation into our the way that our society is institutionalized and and structured so it's just can you see how there's all of these dynamics happening um and all at the same time as well and so people weren't talking about white supremacy back then they were talking about racism because at the time that's how racism was thought of just this this hatred and so if you didn't have this hatred you could never ever be a racist and the actual the found and we didn't realize there was something wrong with the foundation of our houses back then um and white supremacy had kind of um was built into our foundation we thought there was just something it was a minor problem of of hatred um but it runs deeper than that and and kind of also what was happening at the same time is um this protection of um of the white race and i think this is coming from the idea that you know with a structure like white supremacy those who hold the power think that they're the victims um, rather than those who are the actual victims of white supremacy and you know it sounds ridiculous but when you think about it it does happen like you look at what's happening now in New Zealand um, you know our tangata whenua are reclaiming their culture, their language, um, reclaiming their history, their land, and you have a big resistance to it. There very much is a resistance to that. And I think it's coming from this space of, you know, when you're so um, steeped into privilege and entitlement, it feels like a threat, right? It feels like... um, something is being taken away so the need to preserve is very much there and and again when there's that need to preserve it's like oh my gosh I'm the victim here like how often have we heard well it's not Aotearoa it's New Zealand that's the way that I was raised that's the way that I um this is what I grew up with this is the right way um this need for um preservation so this I would this idea of I suppose reverse racism kind of came up as well when the whole colorblind um corridor was coming up and so yeah I think a really interesting time you can see the effects of um 
like this whiteness but we still are not talking about white supremacy it's still we're talking about racism um structural racism symbolic racism um casual racism but we're actually not talking about the fact that the struggle of racism is um enabled and um we can like racism definitely exists because it's institutionalized and it's in our law and it wasn't until the critical race theory came up where this whiteness that we talk about now really came about and people um started talking about it um and I think it's really interesting now we're kind of moving away from this color blindness. And I think that is, it's, it's a good thing that we're moving away from this color blindness because A, it actually doesn't help with the problem at hand. And, um, yeah, it doesn't help with the problem at hand. And also, regardless of like what your skin color is, like you're going to, like I can't run away from my blackness no so just as much as someone can't run away from being white or you know whatever um they may be or whoever they may be um so to you know talk about being colorblind I think runs away from the problem and I think we do need to be critical of race and we need we need to be critical of the systems and the structure and this whiteness as an ideology rather than pretending as if everything's all good and racism is just a matter of hatred and we should think about things as well there's no race to it um So, yeah, we're, we're moving away from the colorblind, being more critical of race and, you know, the research and the conversation around white supremacy is starting to shape up. And then we are moving along in our timeline. Um, Barack Obama is the first black um, American president. And it kind of marks the beginning of this new era, right? And... Um, and you'd think because someone like Barack Obama was president that whiteness is a thing of the past. Um, but actually the tensions that came forward um, during Barack's time, you know, it shows that the, you know, white supremacy and whiteness has filtered down so much that is not even acknowledged or recognized, but the power and the privilege that it provides is most definitely felt. And so having someone like Barack as a leader of a country with such a um, charged history, it definitely brings it up to the surface. And there was a lot of backlash, um, white backlash specifically during Obama's presidency and conversations around um race had a new spin to it had a new um new flavor to it um because we had uh brack 
And then we had Trump afterwards and Brexit. And, you know, Trump is like the epitome of whiteness, right? He is very much, you know, make America great again, which means, you know, make America white again. He has been... um, his whole thing is just white supremacy is very blatant about it as well. Um, you know, calling Mexican immigrants, um, all sorts of horrible things like they're the problem for this. And, you know, they're rapists, bloody, bloody, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, having the Islam ban as well. Like he's just so blatant about his, um, white supremacy, which is, honestly mind-blowing um and and not in a in a great way um and this whole thing is so strange because whiteness isn't defined genetically like we're not all too different from each other um whiteness is can it be considered a race or a culture to be honest i still don't know i still can't answer that Um, but all I know is the whiteness that I talk about, um, is, it's more than just racial ethnic identity. So, so whether or not, you know, whiteness, white, being white means being a certain ethnic identity, who knows, but whiteness is more, it goes beyond that ethnic identity and it has a very different history to other racial or ethnic identities um, because whiteness has been used as a weapon. Um, It has been used as a weapon to maintain certain power structures. Um, It has been used... um, to justify colonization, to justify slavery. Um, And it is so seeped into our society now that, you know, to separate, to, you know, remove whiteness from our structure, the structures of our society. I mean, right now we can imagine it well there's some of us that can imagine it and see it but what that actually looks like who knows because we haven't had another alternative for so many centuries now um and i think also now whiteness doesn't really mean doesn't have like a strong group identity like Everyone, I think we're kind of acknowledging that everyone has their own heritage and and lineage and to put um, everyone from like Europe in the same basket just is, isn't possible. Um, and, you know, to decide that you're no longer white is of no help. And so, you know, is whiteness just an idea? Is it a fact? Is it a ethnic identity? Um, it's just, yeah, I think really interesting to kind of acknowledge that history because now that 
you know, I know more about this history in my mind, you know, I might not have all the answers, but in my mind, I'm like, you know, I can definitely see, you know, how whiteness is, came out of a place of justifying, um, the fact that certain people are treated like second-class citizens and it's been used to kind of maintain that power imbalance for so many centuries this is how I think of whiteness now and I think before I would have even had this knowledge of this history or even had this conversation I probably would have and I definitely used to think this back in the day that you know white was an ethnic identity and all white people could be lumped in in the same boat like literally that is what I thought if you had um a white skin tone you were just all white to me just like the same group and and now that I've gotten older I've realized that actually maybe I will be able to answer my own question now that whiteness isn't uh, a race um it's not uh it's not an ethnic identity it's more of an idea um but it shouldn't be taken as um an ethnic identity and you know in um my language in my culture we call white people adan like you know that adan people and adan just literally translates to white and um you know when I think, you know, that's one of the many reasons why I just was like, okay, white, that is one, like, group of people, but it's more complicated than that. But I hope hearing this, like, brief history of whiteness has been helpful. And for the last wee bit of the podcast, I really just wanted to talk about... um like in the sense of knowing yourself like how is it that you go about that journey because we're you know heading into that period where it's the end of a calendar year and we're entering a new calendar year and people will be reflecting on the year that's just been and kind of dreaming up what this new year can mean for us and I kind of implore everyone to not just think about themselves in the sense of you know these are my goals these are um the habits that I want to build into my life um you know I also would love for people to think about well what goals do I have to to our society um you know you're not going to meet every single person in this world but we're all part of this collective with each other right and um if we're able to do that inner work with ourself then you know it kind of gets reflected into how we externally view this world, how we interact with it. And if asking better questions of yourself and better questions that move away from just thinking about, you know, your hopes and goals and dreams, and all of those things are very important. I'm not saying don't do those things. Um, 
because you know this is your life you only get one shot at living and if you want to achieve certain things heck yeah go for it and you reflect and you dream and you hope and you work hard you make a plan um and you keep trying you do all of those things but if you can ask yourself questions that don't pertain to you know your direct directly pertain to your goals hopes and dreams but actually encourage that true exploration um of yourself I think that will open doors that you just won't really expect and if you can ask those questions of yourself then you can absolutely ask those questions of others and when you ask better questions you get answers that just really change the game that paint another world for you and I kind of like just to kind of also wrap up um this year and seeing as this is going to be the last episode that I'm recording for the year kind of wanted to turn the mic on myself and interview myself but I hope that as I'm asking myself these questions and answering them which I'm also doing on the spot in the hopes that it's a very raw and vulnerable um yeah, very raw and um, vulnerable response um, and very real response as well because you know me, I always like to keep it 100 on here. Um, you know, as I'm answering these questions, it kind of paints another picture of what like it's like to be um, a black Muslim woman um, who's also a migrant to Aotearoa as well. Um and in a way that is different to how it's normally spoken about, right? Like I, I want to, as I'm answering these questions, I invite you to welcome the richness of these answers as well. Because another thing that I've noticed when, you know, people um, are sharing their stories and their experiences, sometimes it can it doesn't acknowledge the the richness of that person's life and it also doesn't acknowledge all the other ways that um uh racism affects one's life and not even in talking about racism just the very rich and complex way that a person interacts with this world depending on you know how they were brought up their um ideas identity their life experiences their education like there are just so many things happening and all of these things like view or um influence how we see this world and I think it's really important that we um acknowledge that and so I hope as I answer these questions um it kind of opens up the door a little bit um so the first question and all of these questions are very random and I'm not going to answer them um, in any particular order um, but the first question I'm going to answer is is it important for you to be seen as attractive um, this is actually a very very interesting question I think I, I may have touched upon this before when I was talking about like the body image stuff and the way that I approach this question is 
coming from so many different levels and um you know I think the answer is yes and no just because I I'm a woman (laughs) I'm a woman who lives in a world where beauty um you know, we say beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and I suppose, yep, that's true, but also beauty is in the eye of the male gaze, and that the world kind of deems beauty from that lens, right, like, if you look at, um, models, if you look at the way that we praise celebrities for looking a certain way, if you look at at um and this is something that I've seen a lot on TikTok like people talking about their experiences of never being seen as attractive so not getting into relationships never having that first kiss until they're like very much um very much into their 20s um or perhaps even early 30s you know if you look at um the yeah, the way that we objectify beauty, it's definitely a very narrow definition definition of beauty. Like hairless, skinny, um, light, like fair-skinned, pale-skinned um, women with like long hair, um, like perfect skin, no cellulite, um, no acne, like there's definitely this prototype of beauty that we all kind of think of when we think of an attractive person and that's because as a society we're kind of conditioned to look at beauty in the eye of the male gaze and um and so when you grow up with that and you know we all grow up with that all of us um wahine grow up with that you definitely feel a certain, um, you definitely, yeah, feel the pressure to look a certain way, and even now that still catches me out, like, yesterday I was wearing pants, and in my head I fully thought that they would cover my ankles, but they didn't, so there was, like, a portion of my leg that was exposed, and because most of the time I don't really show my legs, and A, and B, I'm very, very lazy, and C, my husband doesn't mind, I just don't shave my legs, and then, um, I was just going about my day, and I was looking at my legs, and I definitely felt self-conscious and I felt this sense of shame and I I had to honestly I had to take a minute to kind of pause unpack um and and get and figure out where this was coming from before I felt okay with it um but you know the thoughts of oh my god like why don't I ever shave my legs um that thought process most definitely came up um and so I think when I think about that pressure to be seen as attractive um it it comes up it definitely comes up in my life um even with like hair on my face um sometimes I just get very lazy and I forget about my upper lip or I forget about the hairs in between my eyebrows and um if I let it go too far oh my goodness I am so insecure about it 
Um, and so I definitely feel the pressure to get rid of the hair as soon as I can um, to be considered more attractive. Um, and then the other side of me is, well, actually, it just doesn't matter. Like when I'm with my family or when I'm with the mosque or when I'm with um, my other Muslim brothers and sisters, I actually just don't really care about how I look. Like as long as I'm clean and as long as I'm hygienic, that's the thing that matters um, to me more. Um, that, yeah, that, that is more important to me. And, you know, like from an Islamic point of view, and this is how my parents raised me is the way that you present externally, actually it doesn't matter because the way that you are a, you can't really change that. B you were made, you know, by God and all of his creations are beautiful. Um, and that is, how and that's how I was raised that is how um I was brought up um and so I never really um doubted myself in that sense I just I didn't care like my number one priority was just being seen as clean or being clean not even being seen just being clean and being hygienic um and it wasn't until I I became older and puberty started and um and it was harder to separate the western world from the world that I was raised in at home and they blended together where I I really started to feel confused and I think um this area or this blend that is you know that is where I interact with the world from so it's I would say yes and no to that question I definitely feel the pressure but then um I think when I catch myself out and I have conversations with myself in these moments I I realize what actually is important to me um but it's hard and I definitely cave into pressure so I think yeah yes and no is the answer to that question for me um uh next question is what would your younger self not believe about your life today and I think one of the things that immediately comes to mind is the fact that I've gone back to uni at the age well I, I started this new degree at 26 but I I'm 27 now the fact that I've gone back to uni at the age of 26 and not even like for another master's or anything like that I've gone back to uni starting from scratch as an undergrad um you know it's kind of coming up to the point where it's been 10 years since I've left high school and you know you we kind of give that um as a society we give that pressure of well if you're 10 years out of high school you should have your life together you should be the super successful person um but here I am still studying and you know a lot of people my age you know they are working really good jobs stable income um have kids some have bought a house you know success looks like different things to everyone um 
but everyone has kind of ticked off at least one of those those boxes that you know isn't said directly but you know we know we all know um those boxes have kind of been ticked off and you know i i'm studying so none of those boxes are i suppose really ticked off um and you know i definitely have dealt with other people's projections of what you should be doing by a particular age when I tell people that I've gone back to study um you know I get lots of comments of oh my gosh like you're so um brave for going back I wish I could do xyz and then I kind of turn to them and I say well you know well why can't you like what's really stopping you um and then you can see the same you know, because of what society tells us, that's what's holding people back from having new beginnings and starting all over again. Um, And I think we forget about the fact that life, it may seem short, but it's actually quite long. And even if you, even if you started a new career at the age of 40, um, that is 20, 25 years in that particular career you know we can live many lifetimes um but I think um especially and I've had this as a woman um people talking to me about you know well when is it that you want to start family because now that you've gone back to study you've delayed your life um and I actually have had um, one person did directly word it like that as well like you have delayed your life and um and it just goes to show that you know this the feminist um fight there's still a long way to go because we put restrictions and caps on women don't we I feel like we have an expiry date but men are allowed to live again and start all over without any questions asked but you know the same is not said of a woman and there's the considerations around having kids and I suppose from a biological sense fine you know our eggs are not going to be there forever um and we're not always going to be fertile but at the same time like the assumption is there that you want to have kids and that's not cannot be said for every woman um And I think we should kind of let go of this timeline that we tell everyone that we should all follow. And the extra pressures that this timeline has for women, not great. And it comes up in so many different cultures. Like, you know, the Western world has always seen so liberal and progressive, but and you know other cultures are seen as um very primitive and um disadvantages women by a lot but I've had similar comments about oh kids or you're you know you're low-key kind of ruining your life where you've already had your chance to study why don't you just keep going that's come from all cultures that's come from like um everyone (laughs) um it's not just um Uh, a backwards thing I think um the western world isn't as progressive as we think it is um you know because there has been a lot of criticism of 
um, non-Western cultures and religions for holding women back. Um, but actually, you know, there are so many different ways that women are oppressed and disadvantaged. And um, this is one of the ways. And now that I've gone back to uni at my age and, you know, I'm not going to graduate until, until I turn 31. Um, and I'm very proud of myself for going back and like pushing back against those expectations on me and for seeing value in like my life and for seeing value in what it is that I want to do and for seeing value in the fact that I have told myself this is what I want to do and I'm even if it means I have to start from square one again I absolutely will because this is something that I really want to pursue um and so I but if you told me that when I was younger I would have never ever ever believed that um like I remember thinking oh I'm going to finish uni by the age of 23 I'm going to be married by 25 I'll have my first kid by 27 and that's it like that's literally all I thought but um there's so much more to life and there's um, so much value in knowing who you are and what you want to do and kind of letting go of these pressures and these expectations that we put on ourselves and society puts on us to let go of that pressure and expectation and to live life as we please because you know this pressure has come from so many different spaces and it's kind of coming from all different aspects of my identity but here I am um, and I've just finished my first year and I am so yeah so proud of myself but I would have never ever believed that about my um, life now and um, I think this is we'll probably only have time for one more question um, it's the last question that I, I'm going to end on is what feels important to you now more than ever and um oh, I think I could answer that question in like from quite a few things I think the first thing would be language um you know I've kind of spoken about this on the show before that your identity isn't a blood quantum and it isn't a checkbox um and I think this is a struggle that a lot of um, third culture kids can relate to, right? Where you, um, you're not white and you have another ethnic um, or cultural background and you have to navigate this Western world, but the cost of that might be um, not knowing your own language, your, your mother tongue. And... Um, my Af Somali is poor and I've it's been a sharp realization the past couple of weeks that it's my knowledge my vocabulary and understanding have definitely declined and it's gotten to the point where I, f I feel um disjointed and you know I know my for like, I've decided and I know that I am Somali I'm very proud to be Somali um and I know that there are other Somali people out there who think of me um 
who think less of me as as a Somali person because I don't know the language. You know, obviously it does present its barriers um, of understanding, um, but those barriers doesn't mean that it takes away um, from my Somaliness, um, but it's perceived to be... um, but it's perceived to be by some and which is insane like knowing the language blood quantum it doesn't mean that you're less than um but that's unfortunately a structure that exists in um, our societies and i think we all collectively have a lot of unlearning to do in um this space uh, we have a lot of unlearning to do um, in this space. Um, but I've realized for myself that, you know, when Arthur and I have kids in the future, unless they um, spend lots of time with um, their grandparents or, you know, my mum and dad, their chances of knowing their one of their languages is very very low and you know they're already going to be seen as outsiders because they're not fully Somali I I know that that that's not how it should be but from like the world looking at them that is how they're going to be observed and you know if knowing the language will help bridge that gap then that would be amazing. And if that's something that I can give to my kids so they feel more secure um, in their Somaliness, then yeah, I should work really hard to make sure I can give that to them. And so I think, you know, language is really, really um, important to me more than ever now. Um, you know, before it just didn't seem that big of a deal, but now that I'm um an adult and now that I'm I'm married and, and kids may come in the future, um, you know, it is it is very important to me, um, now more than ever. Um and we're running out of time, so that was the last question. Um, but I hope everyone has an amazing, amazing um, Christmas and New Year's, and they just have an opportunity to fill their cup um, in the new year. Um, it's been a weird year, and I think last year was a really weird year, but this year has just been so strange. Like the uncertainty has taken another form. The level of division has been um, has been different. Um, there's definitely something in the water, um, and I hope everyone takes a break. You know, we're all tired. We're all exhausted to another level. So. Um, take have a good break and keep exploring yourself um and keep being curious and empathetic and we'll catch you in the new year thank you for tuning in into another episode of headscarves and good yarns to keep spinning the yarns let us know your thoughts you can find us on facebook and instagram at headscarves and good yarns or email us at headscarves and good yarn at gmail.com
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.